Hi, I'm Leah Potter. And I'm Meredith Roten, and we're two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast, Getting to the Bottom of It, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus. Leah, you recently visited the Virginia Science and Technology campus to check out some new renovations. Can you tell us what that visit was like? Because you've been there before, right? Yeah, so I visited the campus about a year ago. This was in November of last year, and when I was there the first time, the campus was almost deserted. When I got there, there weren't students walking around. I didn't see any faculty members walking around, and it seemed to be kind of a ghost town. But this time visiting the campus, it was a completely different feeling. There were lots of students walking around, uh, plenty of faculty members, a lot of people had their families there. Of course, this was their welcome back barbecue that we were walking into. What was the change on the campus? There were a series of renovations that happened to Innovation Hall, which is the nursing school's flagship building. And these renovations included creating a student space. So on the first floor, you have study areas, desks with outlets, people can work on their computers, but then you also have these individual study rooms, and there are about six of them where students can reserve the space and work together. But also now they have updated lab spaces as well for their training and exams. But the main change I would say is just creating more of a campus community so that it was one of the nursing school's main goals, but also one of the campus's main goals as well was to make students feel more welcome on campus and feel like they have more of a home. What are the lab spaces like? The lab spaces consist of more than 10 clinical exam rooms, so these rooms look more or less like what you would expect to find when you go to a general doctor's checkup. You walk in, there's either a bed or a seat for the patient, there's a sink, um, maybe something to take someone's blood pressure, maybe something to set up an IV. But what's different about these spaces compared to what you see in a doctor's office is that They have tools for faculty members to observe their students. So first off, you notice there's a clock on the wall, and that's to time students when they're examining a patient, but then there's also double-sided glass. So when a student's in the room, it looks like a mirror, but on the other side, you might have two or three faculty members looking at their patients, filling out a rubric, and evaluating their performance. What does this mean for students who have to go to the Virginia campus? This means that students are going to have a lot more amenities available to them when they're on campus. So in addition to the study spaces that they have and the different rooms that they have to collaborate amongst each other, they also have the option of dining at food trucks. So the university brought food trucks to the Virginia campus several months ago because there was a lack of dining options on campus. They do have a fairly large um, kitchen space available to them, but that was just a quick option for grabbing a bite to eat. In terms of having the clinical lab spaces renovated, students no longer have to travel to the Foggy Bottom campus and go into the medical school to work with uh, different standardized patients or actors who pretend to be patients. Now they can do that directly on the Virginia campus, so this is holding more students on campus at one given time, and that is something that officials are hoping will foster a greater sense of community. Thanks for making the trek out there, Leah. Yeah, always happy to. Meredith, you had a story this week about enrollment in the business school. What's happening there? 
So as you know, the business school just hired a new dean last spring, and he's kind of taken over now. He had the summer to like, get settled in, and he's already having to deal with a budget problem uh, in his first few months that school has started back. Graduate enrollment has declined in almost every area of graduate school at the business school, and so the business school is facing basically a four to six million dollar budget deficit that they have to now make up. Seven programs out of the 17 programs at the business school did not decline or did not change, but the rest of the programs, they all declined sometimes by very significant amounts. For example, the Global MBA program, which is a very popular program at the business school, it had 79 students last year and this year it has 50. So they they were budgeting for 80 students and they now don't have that money because that happened in several other programs as well. What is the university planning on doing about this? So there really hasn't been any plans yet that we know of. It is the beginning of the year and they just kind of are realizing that there's this deficit. So it's kind of a a work in progress as far as we know. What does this deficit mean for students? Is this going to have a large impact on them? Four to six million dollars is not a small amount of money, but compared to the revenue that the business school makes, it is not going to be that significant as far as we know. When I spoke to professors, they didn't seem very concerned. They said it seemed like the dean had this underhand and that he was being transparent about it and letting them know what the issue was. They've hired a new position in the Office of Admissions and Recruitment for Graduate Programs, and that will also help recruit more students for next year and make up for that deficit. Well, thanks for telling us about what's going on with business school enrollment and keep us updated on how this goes with the university. Yeah, thanks, Leah. Sarah Roach, a news editor at The Hatchet, is here to talk about a story she's been working on for a couple of weeks now about the students uh, that go to GW with disabilities. Sarah, can you tell us what you found in your data analysis? Yeah, so last academic year, uh, the percentage of students with a registered disability at least doubled after being at less than 3% for at least seven years straight. And so that brings GW to um, having 6% of students with a registered disability. That places it above at least seven of its peer institutions, including like Boston University, Northeastern University. So before last academic year, there wasn't concrete data as to like the percentage of students with disabilities at GW because um, federal data only accounts for uh, percentages of more than 3%. But with this jump, GW is behind just five of its 12 peer institutions and in, in ahead of seven. And what did experts say were the significance of those numbers? The main thing that they said was that students are more comfortable with talking about their disability and seeking help, whether it be um, extended time on an exam to like write an essay when they're applying to this to a school. And one expert said sort of wearing their disability as like a badge of courage. I spoke with Patrick Randolph, uh, the director of the Center for Student Accessibility at Tulane University, and here's what he had to say. I think that more and more students are starting to embrace just neurodiversity in general. And because of that, they're they're a little bit, it's not necessarily that they're proud 
of what they've overcome with their disability, but it's definitely not as stigmatizing as it once was. So that was the main thing that experts were talking about. And then also just um, one expert who stood out from a couple others was that sometimes schools don't even have sufficient data as to the percentage of students with a registered disability. Um, so GW may have just started to to track this data. And that's how we're seeing this, this increase, especially from the past two academic years. But have officials said that they have recognized the increase and they're doing something to change their policies? Officials said that they've also seen uh, a rise in the percentage of students who registered at disability support services. It's risen by about 50% over the past five years and increased by more than 100% um, for students with a chronic or mental health condition over that same time period. And so that brings the university to having about 1,500 students who are currently registered with the DSS. Mm-hmm. So they have also noticed like a similar so, increase. So they've noticed it. And mm-hmm. and how have they taken that into stride with the current policies that they have in place? Um, they didn't really elaborate on that. They said that they're trying to, you know, beef up their staff um, and things like that, but they didn't uh, elaborate on like specific strategies, how they would manage that. Uh-huh. Um just on for background on disability uh, support services at, at GW, the university was under investigation beginning of last academic year for possible discrimination against students with disabilities. Um, and that was the same year that the percentage of students with a registered disabilities actually jumped. So that probe ended over the summer and, and officials resolved to say that they would improve online accessibility, um, improve you know formatting on websites or like the university's Facebook page or their homepage and make sure that students with disabilities can use their computer and navigate websites with like a clicker mouse and things like that. Thanks for talking about your story, Sarah. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I'm here with my contributing culture editor, Catherine Abugazala, to talk about a new documentary in the works by a GW professor about China and baseball. How are you doing, Catherine? I'm doing great, Margo. How are you? I'm good. I know that this was inspired by one professor, Mark Hyman's trip to China in 2015. And I wanted to know what the process was for the filmmaking and what inspired him. Well, what inspired him was he was teaching a class on globalization in sports in 2015. It was part of a master's program. And he went to one of these development centers that's sponsored by Major League Baseball. And what they do is they take these children, they provide them room, board, and education, and then they learn baseball in the afternoons and on the weekends. You're talking about American, American. baseball, like Amer- like sponsored the by the League. Major League Baseball. What has been like the response? So Mark Hyman actually told me a lot about this. Baseball was taboo in China because during Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution in the 60s, owning a baseball bat was considered a crime. And so now we have more Western influence in Chinese athletics. Uh, The NBA with Yao Ming uh, coming to play in the NBA has gotten a lot of popularity. A lot of people own Houston Rockets jerseys in China, apparently. And so the MLB is trying to extend its reach into China and find more fans with these development centers. Sure. So something that kind of shocked me in your article was that you had said that China has fewer baseball diamonds in its mainland than the entire city of Cleveland, according to the professor. And I wanted to know, did he see a shift in this kind of passion and what kind of drove this change? Well, he talked a lot about the fact that people who were sending their kids to these development centers 
wanted their kids to have a better life and they wanted their kids to be global citizens. And they saw baseball as a way of doing that because it promoted Western values. He actually says that, you know, it's cool because it's what the West does. And so baseball was a path to a better life, even though most people there have no idea what the rules are. Some of the kids that are going to these schools don't even know that much about baseball to begin with, but they're going to these development centers sponsored by the MLB just to learn how to play baseball and how to become a professional player. So Catherine, in your article, you mentioned that for the Chinese students and for Professor Hyman, catch was sort of a universal language. Here's his quote. In this course, we observed, we went to one of these schools, and what we saw was just astounding to us. So we rolled in in our our tour bus, and there were 16 of us, and we looked around, and we saw that there were Chinese players and a few coaches from the U.S., and no one else. That was it. And we were observing children not only being um, taught to play baseball, but being taught to become major league baseball players. And that was just a remarkable thing to see so far away from home. Um, So the students were very impressed. We had an amazing cultural experience. We ended up playing catch with the players at the academy. Um, And that, you know, you can't speak the language, but this is kind of the universal language, playing catch with someone who you can't communicate with in any other way. At the end of the filmmaking process, which right now is still in production, what did Professor Hyman believe the film was going to look like in the end product? He doesn't really know where the story ends. He even says that because he's following two different paths. He's following the path of the first baseball players in America from mainland China, as well as the stories of the kids in these development centers. So he just says he wants to keep going and keep following these stories until they come to a natural and exciting conclusion. Wow, Catherine, this is a very interesting story. Thanks, Margot. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features culture editor Margot Dines. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Cullen and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Catherine Abuguzala and Sarah Roach for joining us. See you next week.